This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we break down for you the important issues confronting America. Today, we will discuss the politics of the opioid crisis with Dr. Andrew Kaladny, Medical Director of Opioid Policy Research at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University in Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being with us. So over the last 25 years, 500,000 overdose deaths in America, which is equal to what we've seen in COVID over the last year. And people have called the opioid crisis the forgotten epidemic. And uh, you were very instrumental early on. And I know uh, you're not uncomfortable with this uh, uh, phrase, but you were one of the early opioid prophets when you were in 2003. You saw this kind of mushrooming. Tell us what you saw back then. Yeah. Uh, so, what became very clear in uh, uh, was very clear in two thousand three, and and could have been e- clearer even earlier uh, was that opioid prescribing in the United States had exploded, and there were hundreds of thousands, actually millions of Americans, getting hooked on opioid pain medicines, getting addicted to opioid pain medicines. And as the prescribing was going up and as addiction was going up, death and other health problems were going up along with that increase. And why was that happening? What starts to happen in the mid-1990s is a campaign gets launched initially mostly by Purdue Pharma, the, the manufacturer of OxyContin. Uh, it was a campaign that encouraged aggressive opioid prescribing, a campaign that really changed the way the medical community thought about opioids as a as a class of drug. Um, you know, it may sound strange to people that uh, doctors who are supposed to be smart, we go to medical school, we care about our patients, um, that we would have been so easily influenced. You know, many mm-hmm. people may mm-hmm. think, you know, how could doctors have mm-hmm. fallen for the idea that opioids are not really addictive? But what was going on in the mid-90s uh, is that this campaign went far beyond Purdue Pharma sending sales reps to visit doctors in their offices. Because if it was just that, we would have been less gullible. The campaign that got launched in the mid-90s and just continues through the 2000s was one in which the medical community starts to hear from many different directions that patients are suffering needlessly because of overblown fear of addiction. We're hearing this from our hospitals, from our state medical boards, from our professional societies, that if you're a compassionate doctor in the know, you'll be different from those stingy mm-hmm. puritanical doctors mm-hmm. of the past. You'll understand opioids are a gift from Mother Nature and mm-hmm. should be used much more for just about any complaint of pain. And as as that prescribing took off, it led to the public health crisis that we're dealing with today. 
And you talk about OxyContin now, as I remember uh, reading, um, it was a drug primarily used for stage four cancer, people in their last, um, kind of their last days. And they decided, hey, we can use this for other ailments such as back pain and, and things and went on that big marketing campaign that you said. Is that pretty much the way it developed? Yeah. You know, I, I, I hate the fact that the Sackler family and Purdue uh, tend to steal the spotlight because there were many bad actors here, other pharmaceutical companies and, and other areas where we should really point the finger um, and not just point the finger um, uh, for the historical record, but because we have policies that need to be changed and fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the Purdue and the Sacklers really were the first, to, I think, to to recognize that if you took a drug that had primarily been prescribed for people with cancer um, and convinced the medical community to prescribe it for common problems. I'm talking about long-term use and and use of extended release opioids, long-acting opioids, uh, that if you could get the medical community to, to prescribe that class of drug for problems like back pain, um, which are much more common. And, you know, with the end of life care, had doctors, own, you know, if, if Purdue had not promoted OxyContin mm-hmm. for conditions where we shouldn't use a drug mm-hmm. like OxyContin, had they only promoted OxyContin for patients at the end of life, they were not going to make very much money. Exactly. Because end, end of life cancer pain is not a common problem. Mm-hmm. And the patients won't be on your drug for very long if they're mm-hmm. at the end of life. Right. And so, it, the stroke of genius was was really getting the this class of drug to be prescribed for long term chronic pain from from common conditions. And 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 what happened here was that people were prescribed this drug. They became hooked on the drug. The doctors stopped prescribing. And so they're still addicted. They turned to heroin, cheaper forms. And um, that's where we're getting a lot of the overdoses now. It's fentanyl and, it, and it's all those things. Is that the way it's been developing? Well, that's you know the way you've just described it is what many people uh, believe is going on. But really, it's that's not exactly right. So you know, what many people think is that deaths are going up right now involving illicit opioids like uh, fentanyl, illicitly synthesized fentanyl, um, because uh, the doctor stopped prescribing all of a sudden and then the patients all switched over. And that's that's really not exactly the way it's played out. Um, from the beginning of the opioid crisis, we saw young people who were getting addicted to prescription opioids switching to heroin. Older people who were getting addicted to prescription opioids were not switching to heroin because middle-aged and older people Mm -hmm. can get pills much more easily from doctors for their chronic pain problem. But even in the early 2000s, doctors were not comfortable giving healthy-looking 25-year-olds lots of opioids every month, unless the doctor was a drug dealer. And and there certainly were pill mill doctors doing that. But mostly young people who were getting addicted would wind up on the street, on the black market. And the pills, even in the early 2000s, were expensive on the black market. Hmm. So if the young person was in a region of the country where heroin was available, they'd switch because it it produces the same effect and it's much cheaper. So 
there was this soaring increase in use of heroin and switching to heroin mm-hmm. among young people across the United States that was happening at the same time that the prescribing was still going up. Mm-hmm. It is true that in the past few years, prescribing has started to come down a bit, but it wasn't the change in you know the, the more cautious prescribing that drove people to heroin. It was addiction that was driving people to heroin. And one of the, there's been great books written about this. And the one that really brought the issue to my attention was Dope Sick by Beth Macy. And uh, she went into West Virginia. I believe she was a reporter for the Roanoke uh, paper, went into West Virginia. And um, one of the things that was fascinating to me is this really started in Appalachia. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that, that that's interesting. Uh, App- Appalachia and, um, and, and also parts of New England, um, were the first in the country to really develop a problem with OxyContin in, in particular. And for, for many years, it was unclear, you know, why, why was Appalachia hit first with OxyContin and hit so hard with, with OxyContin. And, and there, were, there was good speculation um, you know, that made sense, for example, and, and, and certainly contributed to the, to the problem. Uh, you had many people working in in occupations where they're prone to injury, and so they're mm-hmm. going to be more likely mm-hmm. to be exposed, like coal miners. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we something we now know through documents that became available from the litigation against Purdue Pharma was that there was a strategy early on to target states where there was less regulation of opioid prescribing. Mm-hmm. And in the Appalachian region of the United States, um, there, uh, the states there didn't have something called a triplicate pad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so in other parts of the country, if a doctor wanted to write a prescription for a narcotic, mm-hmm. they had a, to write a prescription on a form with three parts, and one part went to the state. One part went to the pharmacy, one part was kept by the doctor. And so you had this system for regulating it better. And um, Purdue understood from focus groups they did early on uh, was that in states where it was more regulated, doctors would be more reluctant to prescribe Mm -hmm. a Schedule II opioid aggressively. And so they stepped up their efforts in, 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 in the state's without the triplicate pads like the Appalachian states. And um, the um, the doctors you were saying right now, they've kind of kind of cut back, but have those laws changed in those states? The triplicate pads have, or have really disappeared in part because of lobbying by the pharmaceutical industry. So <laughs> less states actually have those oh, triplicate pads, but there's more electronic prescribing. Mm-hmm. And what more states mm-hmm. have now are prescription, and pretty much every state, uh, almost every state, has a prescription drug monitoring program. So it's no longer uh, regulated or monitored using a a three-part form. It's uh, more regulated using electronic monitoring. And and that has helped helped a bit. Um, And we are seeing prescribing trending in a more cautious direction, more so because the medical community has been getting the idea in recent years that we were duped. Um, there are still lots of doctors who are prescribing very aggressively, mm-hmm. but more doctors who understand that a lot of that messaging was just totally mm-hmm. false mm-hmm. and that these are not good drugs for people to be taking round the clock 
for weeks and months and years. You saw Purdue Pharma has, you know, settled for billions and they're, they're saying they're going to provide that money to get people help. Uh, they went into bankruptcy, but um, there's thoughts that are, are the ways they're structuring the bankruptcy where they're not going to be run out of business and they're going to be able to still um, make profits from this. And you talked about other companies, McKinsey Consulting, $650 million for turbocharging, which is the phrase for, for really pushing these things. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is there's been criminal charges filed against Purdue Pharma, but no one individually is being held responsible for all these deaths. Is that the case? That, that is the case. And and it's a serious problem. So, and, and it not just charged, but uh, Purdue was recently criminally convicted mm-hmm. uh, of of felony um, for um, uh, uh, for improperly promoting its opioids, and I think the complaint even uh, listed bribing doctors to prescribe mm-hmm. OxyContin, mm-hmm. and um, and so the company was criminally convicted, but no individuals were criminally convicted. And we've seen this uh, happen time and again, uh, particularly with distributors of mm-hmm. opioids, mm-hmm. not just the companies that make them, mm-hmm. where they're where they get fined or where there might be a criminal conviction. We've seen this with the manufacturer of uh, other opioids, a company called Cephalon mm-hmm. made a fentanyl product that you mm. absorb through your mouth, a sublingual fentanyl mm. product that was only approved for cancer patients, but they got caught promoting it for people who didn't have cancer. Mm. That company in 2006, I think, or seven was um, criminally convicted as well. And over and over again, we've seen companies criminally convicted or fined lots of money, but no individuals are criminally convicted. No individuals are fined. The people who work in these companies who make these decisions walk away scot-free, mm-hmm. possibly richer, mm-hmm. while the company gets criminally convicted. And you know, if we really want to deter corporations from killing people in their pursuit of profit, individuals who make these decisions should be held accountable. The, the, the other, I guess, portion of this problem has been the federal government. And um, even during the Obama administration, there wasn't a lot of emphasis put on this problem. I think people have compared uh, the administration's reaction similar to Ronald Reagan, kind of not you know, agreeing or not noticing or, or recognizing the AIDS crisis, which resulted in tens of thousands more deaths. Um, I think Obama at the end was doing some things, but the FDA has a big role in this because they've approved these. Tell us about that process. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. There really is a lot of blame to go around. And the Obama administration was, I think, really did fail. Uh, to respond appropriately to the opioid crisis. And I think the comparison between President Obama and Ronald Reagan is a fair comparison because Ronald Reagan was rightly criticized for not responding appropriately to the AIDS crisis. Ronald Reagan didn't speak about AIDS Mm -hmm. until his very last year in office. And even though he was being urged to address it sooner, and I think it's because, you know, you you had a disease that was killing uh, stigmatized groups, gay right. men, in, injection right. drug users, mm-hmm. 
Um, and with President Obama, it it was also not until his last year in office mm-hmm. until he ever spoke publicly about the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think there too, it's because you had you know, stigmatized groups, people with addiction that were dying mm-hmm. in, in high numbers. And, and I, I think that's really a shame. Uh, I don't know that President Trump did that much better, but right. um, and um, certainly the opioid crisis was especially severe when he came into office. So lots of blame to, to go around on the executive branch. Yeah, it, um, I mean, the, the FDA is complicit in this, aren't they? Yeah, so in speaking about the executive branch, the Food and Drug Administration, I really believe um, bears tremendous responsibility for the opioid crisis because, you know, I, I, I truly do believe that capitalism as an economic system works. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm glad I live in a country where our economy is primarily driven by, by capitalism. Mm-hmm. But we do need regulatory agencies to make sure that companies behave properly, right. to make sure that, that companies don't harm the public in their pursuit of, of profit and so, yes, the Purdue and the Sacklers and other opioid makers and distributors, um, in their greed led mm-hmm. to a massive loss of life. Mm-hmm. But we have a regulatory agency that was supposed to prevent that. And we have laws that were on the books mm-hmm. that, if enforced, would have stopped Purdue Pharma in its tracks. Mm -hmm. And so I truly believe that had the FDA been doing its job properly from the very beginning, we would not have an opioid crisis today. And and it's interesting because uh, Janet Woodcock is serving as the acting uh, commissioner, I guess, for the FDA. And uh, you and a lot of the families who have suffered through this are asking President Biden not to appoint her as the uh, the the leader of the FDA because she was really the police in the FDA as this went on. What was her role in all this? That that's right. So the division of the FDA that was regulating medicines and opioids is called CEDAR, and pretty much from the very beginning of the opioid crisis from even before approval of OxyContin, it gets approved December of 1995, Dr. Woodcock was running that division going back to 1994. Um, That division that was making these disastrous decisions that led to a massive loss of life and millions of people becoming opioid addicted, that was Janet Woodcock's uh, division. And, you know, you could potentially give Purdue, give FDA the benefit of the doubt for some of its early mistakes. Uh, for example, its approval of OxyContin. Um, you could, um, or even some of the, the early decision to allow Purdue to promote OxyContin for conditions where it, it shouldn't be used. Uh, you could say, well, maybe the doctors working at FDA were falling sway to the same campaign that was changing prescribing across the board you know, this campaign that Purdue was underwriting. And so maybe they were influenced, maybe they were duped. But certainly by the early 2000s, it's very clear to the FDA that the prescribing has taken off at a rate much greater than could be clinically needed. 
it's very clear that we've got a public health crisis in Appalachia, New England, spreading to other states, and that, and it's very clear that there are steps that FDA could take to to intervene to stop the drug companies at that point from promoting opioids improperly. And instead of taking those actions, they actually went in the opposite direction. They made it easier for other drug makers to put their opioids on the market. And even at times when expert advisory committees, external committees of outside experts voted against approving new opioids, the FDA overruled them and continued approving opioids, even allowed Purdue Pharma, I think in 2013, Mm. even after its first criminal conviction, gave Purdue Pharma a license to promote OxyContin for children 11 years old and up. And, And Janet Woodcock's division was really making all of these terrible mistakes. And I, you know, I don't, just the last point I want to make on this is that we had a commissioner of FDA get on 60 Minutes a couple of years ago, David Kessler, who acknowledged on 60 Minutes that FDA had made horrible mistakes. That led two members of Congress, two senators, to send FDA a letter after the 60 Minutes episode, a letter saying, hey, you know, we want you to be clear about these mistakes and tell us what you're going to do to fix them. And the response letter that the senators got back was written by Dr. Woodcock. Mm-hmm. And instead of Dr. Woodcock agreeing with the, with the former commissioner and saying, yes, we've made horrible mistakes and we're going to fix these mistakes, instead she sent a long letter defending all of these mm-hmm. mistakes and really refusing to fix anything. And so you know, advocates are very concerned about the fact that uh, Dr. Woodcock, who's now acting commissioner, mm-hmm. may be at the top of President Biden's uh, shortlist for mm-hmm. becoming the standing FDA uh, commissioner. And so we're, we're really um, hoping that uh, President Biden will find someone else to run FDA. What do you think he needs to do as a president uh, for this crisis? I mean, we're 25 years into this. I think the last year that I saw accounted for 76,000 overdose deaths in this country. So that's 25 years after this problem started. What does he need to do as a president uh, to affect this issue? That's really a a great question. And, you know, to start off, um, we should be clear about what the opioid crisis is, because sometimes I think people focus too much on the opioid crisis is an overdose epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yes, we have a sh- an enormous number of Americans dying of overdoses, but the reason that most of these people are dying is because they became addicted to opioids. And and the strategy for addressing the opioid crisis that would ultimately result in less people dying involves preventing people, more people from getting addicted and making sure that people who are addicted are easily able to access effective treatment and harm reduction services. And if we get there, I think we'll, we'll see deaths come down. Something that President Biden needs to do um, that we've never seen to date for the opioid crisis is to ensure that all of the federal agencies are working together in a coordinated fashion. Something we've seen over the years have been different federal agencies at odds with each other on the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. We've seen the FDA and the DEA 
butting heads over, for example, uh, how to regulate hydrocodone mm-hmm. with the FDA wanting it in a more restrictive category and the, and I'm sorry, the DEA wanting it in a more restrictive category and the FDA blocking that change. Ultimately, it happened. We've seen the FDA and the CDC at odds with each other because the CDC is issuing guidance to the medical community to prescribe fewer opioids, especially to start fewer people with chronic pain on opioids, Mm -hmm. but an FDA that keeps approving new opioids and allowing them to be marketed improperly. And I'm just giving you some examples, but there are many different federal agencies uh, within HHS, within the Department of Justice, within Homeland Security, where what you really want to see is everyone coming together and working together instead of issuing conflicting messages about a public health crisis. Um, and so that's one thing that has to happen. I mean, I, I could, we could do a whole show on, on, <laughs> on, on bringing the opioid crisis to right. an end and things that Biden should, should do, but right. that, that would be one really important change. Back, I mean, for years I worked in Baltimore and Baltimore was the most addictive city in America at one point when I was there, heroin big in the West and the East sides. And there's always been this criticism that this has been going on in the black communities for 40, 50 years. Now it's seeping into the suburban white communities and now it's a crisis is it just the numbers that are that are causing this um causing this um you know look at this yes and no so uh, you know there really is no question that race has played an important role in how policymakers have responded to addiction problems and addiction epidemics and and there's no question that during the heroin, heroin epidemic of the 1970s and during the crack cocaine epidemic of the late 80s, early 90s, that the response that we got from policymakers to those two epidemics that disproportionately impacted Black and Latino, low-income, inner-city communities, um, the response from policymakers was really a message that we could potentially arrest our way out of the problem. Uh-huh. And that message really changed um, during the current epidemic, which has, um, in terms of new cases of opioid addiction, disproportionately impacted white communities, particularly suburban and rural Mm -hmm. communities. Mm -hmm. What we started to hear from policymakers, even conservative Republican policymakers, was the message that we can't arrest our way out of this that we've got to see that people with addiction have access to treatment. You know, we could, we could still do better in hearing more of that, but you know, it, it's good. It's really good. We're hearing that now it's, it's too bad that we weren't hearing it in the past. Um, but you know, it isn't true for people, you know, it's not accurate to say, well, the reason this problem gets more attention these days is because now it, because it's affecting whites and it got less attention when it when the problem was worse among non-whites. That's that's not accurate because it's not accurate on on a couple of fronts. For one thing, the crack cocaine epidemic got quite a bit of media attention. Yeah. It was just really the wrong kind of mm-hmm. attention, but it really mm-hmm. was featured mm-hmm. in in the news prominently. Yeah. Um, but the scale of this epidemic, mm-hmm. the number of people affected those prior epidemics really were concentrated in cities like Baltimore, uh, Philadelphia, Mm. 
you know, North Philly, mm-hmm. South Bronx, Central mm-hmm. Brooklyn, East Harlem. There were communities where this problem was devastating and severe. But for the most, but the, for the rest of the country, there was spared. And this time around, the whole country wasn't impacted. So the scale of this is just far greater than anything we've ever experienced before. And, and one other reason why this messaging is incorrect is that right now with, with the very dangerous illicit opioid supply, older survivors of the heroin epidemic of the 1970s, you know, uh, which, which disproportionately hit men, um, uh, these older black and Latino men in Baltimore, in North Philly, in, in inner city parts of uh, New York City, um, have been hit especially hard. The region of the country, actually the, the geographic area in the United States that was, has been most impacted by fentanyl was, is Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. uh, inner mm-hmm. city D.C., where mm-hmm. you had, you know, which yeah. was an, uh, an area hit hard by heroin in the, in the 1970s. Our capital, so, our nation yeah, capital. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there certainly, when it comes to overdose deaths and the impact of fentanyl, um, that is not a disproportionately white problem. If anything, it's disproportionately black and Latino. So you were talking about North Philly. I grew up in about a mile from North Philly, and um, we have a mutual friend in Ed Bish, and Ed is really a textbook example of, of what happened in this country and, and, and to a lot of people. He was at work one day, got a call saying, come home, there's trouble with your son. And when they came home, his son was dead of an overdose of Oxycontin. And as they were carrying him out, the ambulance driver, he asked the ambulance driver, hey, what happened? And the ambulance driver said, oxy and he was like well what the hell is oxy and then he uh jumped on that was 20 years ago um this last month and uh, he jumped on this he started a website um oxy abuse kills a lot of families started writing in he was going to hearings with purdue he was he was covering purdue like a linebacker covers a quarterback i mean he was all over them he really promoted this and i you know his son was a was a sweet guy uh, always a kid you like to see smiling the red cheeks and um you know that is like a textbook example that happened over and over and over again in our country. I remember reading in Dope Sick, it was a high school football hero that, that overdosed. And, um, you know, so um, is it getting better at all, do you think, Doctor? I, I think there are aspects to the crisis that are getting better. Uh, it's difficult to say because we're, we don't have good public health surveillance. Mm-hmm. So if you think about COVID, you know, every day, um, you can find out for any county in the United States how many people have been hospitalized with COVID, how many mm-hmm. people have died from COVID. Mm-hmm. We can even find out the positivity rate and testing right. Right. for every single county in the United States. It's a this is compared to the opioid crisis, a brand new epidemic, mm-hmm. and and not that we've done a good job, we've done a horrible job in responding to COVID, right. but at least the surveillance has been been mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. We're more than 20 years into the opioid addiction epidemic, and you're you're asking me how we're doing, and it's really hard to say because the death data that we get um, is more than a year old, and uh, then even the yeah. year old data is still considered provisional data. Mm-hmm. And what we're totally lacking are estimates for how many people have opioid addiction mm-hmm. um, on a state level or county level or on mm-hmm. a national level. And more importantly to the question that you've asked, 
we don't have good incidence data. Mm-hmm. We, in other words, we don't know the number of people becoming newly addicted to opioids. And I, w- I, I do believe that the number of people becoming newly addicted is declining mm-hmm. because doctors are prescribing more cautiously. Mm-hmm. I also believe that that rate, even though I think less people are becoming newly addicted, I think the rate is still very high because we're we're massively over we're still massively over prescribing. We have a very long way to go. And so but I, I do think that there could be a trend toward less people becoming addicted and there's some evidence evidence of that. Uh, so you know, some reasons to be hopeful, but the mortality data is just awful. And for the millions who are opioid addicted, we still don't have really good access to effective treatment. And until we get there, I think the death rate is going to be very high. You are part of a a doctor's group. Tell us a little bit about that. The group that I helped co-found is called Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing or, or, or PROP. And we formed in 2010 uh, at a time when the prescribing was still going up and near an all-time peak level. And um, we were docs from different specialties. Uh, my background is treating addiction. Um, some of our other co-founders, their specialty was treating pain or primary care or emergency medicine. And what brought us all together was that we recognized that the opioid crisis, this epidemic of opioid addiction, had been caused by the medical community prescribing too much. And we recognized that a lot of these messages that we that were being driven toward the medical community about the need to prescribe more opioids, even in 2010, were near all-time peak levels. Mm-hmm. And doctors are hearing that we're not prescribing enough opioids and that we shouldn't worry about getting anybody addicted. We realized that these messages were just totally wrong. We realized that the Food and Drug Administration was not really doing its job properly. So we, we formed and started. Initially, we tried to work with our own professional organizations mm-hmm. to get them to dis- disseminate better education. But you know, it, when we first started saying, hey, all of this is wrong, it was at a time when it was taboo mm-hmm. for to to criticize opioids because the messaging had been that patients are suffering because we don't prescribe enough, and so so we put out new messages and we began advocating with the Food and Drug Administration to better regulate mm-hmm. the companies that are promoting opioids and their messaging, and um, and we've been at that ever since, and we've been up against um, Purdue and and other opioid manufacturers that have been working very hard, spending a lot of money um, on public relations firms uh, to try and discredit us or to make mm-hmm. us sound like mm-hmm. we're some mm-hmm. anti-opioid, extreme mm-hmm. anti-opioid mm-hmm. zealots. And, yes. Um, yeah. so, They've particularly come after you, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. I've read. Yeah. So what can our listeners do to help um, in, in, in reducing, hopefully ending this crisis? In most cases, I would tell people that when they visit a doctor, they should trust their doctor. Uh, they and and if a doctor prescribes them a medicine, um, they should generally trust that that medicine is going to be safe and effective for the problem that the doctor is prescribing it. And um, but when it comes to opioids, 
this is a unique situation where you know people can't necessarily trust that their doctor is making the best decision for them and i'm not suggesting that we should think that our doctors are all being bribed because that's an extremely rare situation the problem is that millions of dollars have been invested in deceiving the medical community misinforming the medical community so many of our doctors don't understand that a drug like oxycodone or hydrocodone produces effects that are indistinguishable from the effects produced by heroin, that they're so highly addictive. Even now in the midst of our opioid crisis, doctors are overprescribing. So something that I would hope listeners would keep in mind is that if your doctor prescribes you an opioid, you should, or prescribes your child or your teenager an opioid, you really ought to think twice about accepting that prescription. These are really highly addictive drugs. And if you can manage that, that pain problem with um, non-opioid pain medicines or with alternatives to medicines, really think about doing that. Yeah, I remember I, I broke my ankle a couple of years ago and they gave me opioids uh, just hey, here. And um, I said, I didn't take them. I just put them in. That was it. I didn't, I didn't take them. And they gave me Tylenol, you know, 1800 milligrams of Tylenol and that, that works. So um, we have to self-police is, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that there is no role for opioids. These are good for end of life care if someone's just had surgery, mm-hmm. but otherwise for your average everyday pain problems, or even after wisdom teeth come out, there is zero need for, for opioids. Non-opioid pain medicines are better. Thank you so much, doctor. We appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to come on with us. And what you're doing is very admirable. There's a lot of families out there suffering with this issue, um, a lot of heartbreak. And um, we appreciate you uh, doing what you can for them and uh, for the nation. Thank you. And thank you for having me. All right. I'd like to thank our announcer, Dave, our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods, and our contributing voice talent, John One Take Thursdays, the voiceover Tampa Bay. If you get a chance today, check out a new book by a friend of ours, uh, Angie Debransky in Washington, D.C. Uh, she put out a book called Life Lessons in Success, 36 True Life Stories from Writers Sharing Their Successes in Life. And that's available today on Amazon.com. We will We'll be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.